Now, Mm -hmm. those that were running, they burned more calories on a daily basis, but they actually started to eat more, but they were eating Mm -hmm. more than they were burning. They saw Mm -hmm. increased levels of hunger. They saw a series of potential binge eating episodes and those sort of things. So without that proper fueling strategy in place, people were just kind of like eating more than they should based off how much they Mm -hmm. were running and increase in hunger levels and those sort of things was a big component of that. Hi guys, welcome back to the Adaptive Zone podcast. My name is Matthew Boyd. I'm a physiotherapist and running coach. If you enjoyed today's episode, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And if you're so inclined, share it with a friend. Today, we're chatting with Stephanie Small about running to lose weight. Steph's a registered dietitian who specializes in helping recreational and competitive athletes. You can find her at stephaniesmallcoaching.com. In this episode, we discuss the role of running in fat loss, how to avoid gaining weight if you're training a lot, and how to modify your diet to allow you to lose body fat without compromising your training. This was a fascinating interview with lots of practical tips and answers to questions that I hear all the time. Stick around until the very end as Steph answered a couple of follow-up questions by email that I've recorded and added to the end of the episode. Anyway, that's enough out of me. Let's get into it. So, Stephanie Small, welcome to the Adaptive Zone podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're quite welcome. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and your professional work? Yeah, absolutely. So I am currently a performance dietitian, but also a PhD student at the University of Toronto. Um, So I have a background working in with a variety of different athletes from football players, cross country, soccer and other team sports. Um, But after my sports rotation, I really wanted to go into private practice and I really focused on a variety of recreational athletes. But I will say a lot of my athletes are runners just because I'm a runner myself and I kind of gravitate towards oh, yeah. that area. Um, and I really love carbohydrate metabolism. So that's sort of my thing and runners need carbs. So, <laughs> right. Okay. I see. So that's the area that you research. Yes, it is. I was reading a paper of yours just last night about, um, honestly, most of it went over my head. I tried my best, <laughs> but <laughs> it was about, um, how fat, um, how, how, calorie restriction and uh, carb restriction would affect um, carb carbohydrate um, metabolism during exercise. But mm-hmm. I got a little bit lost on some parts of it. But I, might, <laughs> I might come back to that later. But I think the gist of it was trying to say that, you know, if you are in a low carb state, then you'll still use carbs when you're running. Yes. Unless you are in a, a low fed state, like you, ha- you don't mm-hmm. have enough calories. And is, yeah. is that was that did I get it? <laughs> yes, you did. Yeah. So when you're in a like more of a starved state, your carbohydrate metabolism is impaired um, versus if you're just in a low carbohydrate state. And let's say you ingest carbohydrates during a run, you're still going to metabolize those appropriately or use them for energy. But I think the I did get the sense from what you were saying in the article that you, you would get somewhat, uh, as they say, fat adapted, that you you do actually become a little better at metabolizing fat if you have low carbohydrate mm-hmm. levels. Is that is that did I get that right? Yes. So that's like so if you're in a either a train low type of phenomenon where people will actually go into a training session being fed low carbohydrates, or if someone is being fed like a a keto type diet, you'll actually become more efficient at using fat for energies. 
But Mm -hmm. uh, caveat to that, so Dr. Louise Burke, she is an Australian sports uh, nutrition researcher, phenomenal work, but she's done a series of studies and she's found that even though performance isn't necessarily impaired in that fat adapted state, the oxygen cost to running in a fat adapted state is actually higher than a carbohydrate fed state. So basically you're less efficient when you run um, if you're in that fat adapted state. So that's some pretty cool work. That is interesting. I'm not sure what the take home is of that. Um, (laughs) I I don't know that I can think quick enough. So what does that mean for runners? Yeah, so if you were a runner and you were in a low carbohydrate state, you you would require more oxygen to run. And so that's going to be of quite demanding. So you'll require like longer recovery periods. You may not be able to run as long. Your training adaptations may be impaired in those sort of things. There are anomalies. They have found people that seem to do very well with it. Um, but I find that is far few in between as opposed to being mm-hmm. in a carbohydrate state. Um, if you are being fed carbo- a high carbohydrate diet, your oxygen demand, so you require less oxygen to metabolize carbohydrates. Um, so you mm-hmm. actually become more efficient during your runs in that carbohydrate state. So would it be fair to say that perhaps uh, low carb, high fat as a long term strategy may only work for few and um, maybe shouldn't be the go to for like a recreational athlete like myself, you know, who doesn't, who isn't an elite performer looking for marginal gains? Yes, exactly. Typically, they've done the research in more of that elite population, um, mm. but they've already met their basic needs. They already like had that carbohydrate mm. based feeding. They're getting all their nutrients in. Most of them have like chefs and all that good stuff. Um, but for most okay. of the recreational athletes, that fat adaptive state may actually be more harmful on a f- performance standpoint, but also a psychological standpoint. So I t- tend to not even suggest it or at least navigate away from it if it is brought up in conversation okay okay well that i mean this is fascinating but this is not why i brought you on today because yeah. <laughs> i wanted to talk about running and weight yeah. loss but i will direct the the listener to my episode with um dr bob murray i'll put a link in the description where we talked all, at length about all of this and he nice. basically in summary agreed with your uh, take-homes so mm-hmm. if runners want more in-depth um discussion of that and 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 the who the why the what and exactly what to do i would point them to that episode but as interesting as that is i want to talk about running and losing weight Mm -hmm. this is a question that i get (laughs) weekly at least and or at least comes up maybe they're not asking me about it but people are talking about wanting to lose weight and i often feel that it's in competition with the goals that they've also set for themselves which is usually as a physio one get over this injury Mm -hmm. uh, two get ready for my race which is you know injured runners only come to physio when there's a race coming up (laughs) you know if they're injured and it's the off season they just "Ah, i'll be better next year they don't Mm -hmm. worry about it so there's always this sort of time deadline and then oh yeah i want to lose five pounds or ten pounds and i'm like oh man (laughs) um, this is something that comes up a lot and i would really appreciate a little bit of uh clarification on on what uh what role running can play in let's say fat loss or body composition and whether that is a 
always a healthy strategy or never a healthy strategy or, or what to think about. So I'm hoping you can help me clear that up a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. Let me go ahead and like, dive right into it. <laughs> yep. So yeah. if we start with um, just to sort of get everybody on the same page, if could you sort of outline the difference between your weight and maybe um, sometimes you hear the term body composition? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So weight is just going to be your whole entire body as is. So this is going to include your skin, your bones, your muscle mass, your fat mass, your organs, every single thing. And it's important to remember that your weight actually fluctuates based on hydration status, salt intake, and all of those fancy things. But your weight is just one solid thing. However, body composition refers to typically your body fat percentage or how much muscle that you may have on your body. So someone who says that they want to improve their body composition, they typically refer to uh, wanting to lose body fat. And body fat's just mm -hmm. going to be the amount of fat on your body compared to your muscle mass. Yeah, and that's pretty much what I thought. And I think that's what most people understood yeah. that as. And when I think runners are often saying to me, I want to lose weight, what they really mean is I want to lose body fat, um, mm -hmm. I would imagine. And they're not really interested in losing bones or muscles. <laughs> they, <laughs> yeah. They'd like to keep those things. Yes. And yeah. what is your opinion on the role of running to help with, let's, is fat loss an appropriate term? Yes, fat loss is a very appropriate term. Um, okay. As a whole, so in order to achieve fat loss, you need to have a combination of enough protein intake to maintain your muscle mass and kind of that sort of side of things. Um, but you also need to be in a caloric deficit. So you need to be consuming less food than you're expending. And running is actually a way to increase your uh, energy expenditure or amount of, of calories you're burning on a daily basis, right? Um, but mm -hmm. there, it can be very much more nuanced than that, I find, because running can lead to hunger. Um, there's a problem with like fueling strategies that can impact body composition, those sort. But to kind of keep it on the short side of things, yes, running can be a tool to encourage mm -hmm. fat loss, but it may not be the only tool to do so. So one of the ways in which someone could have a goal to lose body fat and use running is I'm going to increase my running or start running. Uh, I'm going to train for an event, a half marathon or something that will motivate me to get running mm -hmm. more. And that will increase my energy expenditure. And all things being equal, they would lose body fat, presumably. Yes. But all things aren't always equal. So you said one of the things that might happen is hunger. Um, I know for myself, I don't know if it's really hunger. I just find I eat more when I'm training a lot. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't know that I feel all that hungry. I just notice <laughs> by the end of the day, I've eaten a lot more than I otherwise would have. Mm -hmm. um, so in the theoretical sense, yes, that, you know, you would run a energy deficit if your energy expenditure went up but in the practical sense has anybody looked at you know maybe some research studies where they got people to run and just let them eat what they want do they just eat a ton more and they end up where they started or do people who have they done interventional studies where they looked at running as the intervention for fat loss yeah and they have and they're pretty cool um, i don't remember the author to this paper but basically they had people either do uh, a running intervention or a strength training intervention 
let them eat what they want, like just those kind of free living situations and kind of see what the changes in their body composition were. They found that those that were resistance training increased muscle mass because that's what resistance training does. Um, Mm -hmm. And there was a a balance between maintaining their weight and losing some weight. You're thinking about one to two kilograms. So it wasn't significant, um, which makes sense because resistance training as a whole doesn't burn a lot of calories. Now, Mm -hmm. those that were running, they burned more calories on a daily basis, but they actually started to eat more but they were eating Mm -hmm. more than they were burning. They saw Mm -hmm. increased levels of hunger. They saw a series of potential binge eating episodes and those sort of things. So without that proper fueling strategy in place, people were just kind of like eating more than they should based off how much they Mm -hmm. were running and increase in hunger levels and those sort of things was a big component of that. I see. So how do you make sense of that? As far as like why people did that? Yeah. Why didn't they just eat? If they increased their energy expenditure by 500 calories a day, why didn't they just get hungry enough to eat another 500 calories? Why did they eat more? Yeah. So the study itself did not like dive into that. However, based on my experience, I have some assumptions. I do find that Mm. people don't fuel around their runs. And without fueling Mm. around your runs, I find that there's this like extreme hunger that occurs two to three hours post your running session. Um, And and so people without that fueling strategy in place, they end up over consuming because they're just, they're in this such like a high hunger state. They can't control it. That's what I see commonly. They kind of overshoot, you know what I mean? They get hungry enough, I -hmm. suppose, um, in a time, you know, many millennia ago where there was more food scarcity, we wouldn't have the option to just open the fridge and, (laughs) pile a bunch of food into our mouth (laughs) we'd have to go and find it or whatever so it's going to be more limited whereas now you know within reason as much food as you can eat available to you pretty much Mm -hmm. and And hyper so potentially foods yes yeah Uh, no i I see what you mean so it's also that you know you get that hunger three hours later and you don't you know think oh i'm gonna I'm going to make a stir fry. <laughs> you think I'm going to rip these co- cookies open and just eat them. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. So so in the practical, I mean, does is that study representative of other studies on running? Um, can you make running work for fat loss? Or is this something that um, is not a good strategy? You know, and does running have to be removed if you're going to, uh, if your goal is more to for fat loss? I wouldn't say running has like has to be removed because there are studies that show that running is like people lose weight when they run. And I think there are just so many other factors that we have to consider. Um, a lot of these studies aren't well controlled. They don't really address diet too, like specifically or have any sort of um, comparative controls either as far as groups goes. So I take it in my private practice on a person to person basis based Mm. off of like their previous history with dieting, if they have any issues with food, their current dietary habits and those sort of things, um, just to make sure that they are in a good place to one, be in a fat loss state, but two, being able to combine running with a fat loss state. Okay. And you mentioned that one of the reasons that it could potentially not work, one of those other factors that you mentioned was this fueling part of it, which, you know, I, I, the reference that I just gave people for that other episode was like all about that. So you don't have to go into at length, but just for the listener, 
what would be a good fueling strategy if you let's say I'm going to do an hour of running today and I don't want to excessively eat and um, because of that I want to maintain a caloric balance what would be my strategy I think that question that answer can be extremely complex but to kind of keep it with general recommendations definitely want to have a something before that workout. Now, depending on the time before that workout will depend on what that is. Um, if you just woke up and you're in a fasted state, maybe that's a half a banana and some applesauce or something of that nature. Um, but if you're running in the afternoon, that may be a full meal, right? It's just making sure that you have something in your system. And then mm -hmm. post-workout, that 30 minute to two hour period post-workout, most people aren't hungry just because running does increase hormones that suppress the appetite, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean you don't need to eat or need to fuel. And this is what I call being an intuitive athlete. So just because you aren't hungry doesn't mean you don't need to refuel. So in that two hour period, making sure you have some combination of carbohydrates and protein or a full balanced meal that at least has carbs and proteins to make sure that you're refueling your carbohydrate stores. And then also you're promoting um, recovery with the protein. Okay. So it's a, yeah, like you, you mentioned intuitive athlete that it's, it's not quite intuitive eating that is it you're not yeah. listening to your body and following your cues you're almost sort of trying to be one step ahead of it because you understand what it's going to do. And if you do that, does that suppress that sort of three hour later hunger um, surge? Absolutely. Yeah. If you eat within right. that two hour period, you're not going to feel like starving or ravenous in that three to four hour period, which can be very helpful to a lot of people. So you're, you're basically trying not to eat on an empty stomach, uh, try not to, sorry, run on an empty stomach would be the first thing and then mm -hmm. eat soon afterwards, something with protein and carbs. And is it better to make that like whole foods type stuff? Or does it not matter that much? Are convenience foods? Okay, you know, like trail bars or whatever. Yeah. If it's something a little smaller, like a protein shake or like a trail bar or something like that, um, I would advocate making sure that you do have a full size meal within, within three to four hours just to kind of make sure you are getting all those nutrients in because just a trail bar, just a protein shake may not be enough. But however, for that convenience factor, if you can't get to a meal within that two hour period, definitely aim to have that more of that snack and then try to get that meal in as soon as possible. So I'm a proponent of using supplements or any of those convenient foods when when they work for people. You're just trying to keep the hunger at bay, I guess. Yes. And keep it from yeah. making you make bad decisions later. Yes. And then also start that recovery process, which is always a plus. So it would potentially make your training more effective as well because you can mm -hmm. recover more quickly. Yep. So not only with your muscle, but they have shown in studies that the sooner that you eat carbohydrates post-workout, the higher that you can get your glycogen stores prior to your next training session. Okay, I see. Um, yeah. So it's going to mean that, you know, if you have a, a running workout one day and you have another one that's a reasonably difficult workout for you the following day, you're going to be more able to perform well in it if you're not having uh, any kind of hunger around these runs like during or after it's, it's like trying to make sure that you're sort of well fueled and then during the run um are there do you have your sort of take on how much people need to eat during a run is it only a run of a certain length or anything like that yeah so any run greater than 90 minutes we definitely need to ensure that there are some intra-workout fuels so you're aiming for 
I typically start people out with 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. So if you're running 90 minutes, this could be as simple as having like a gel or a couple blocks or something of that nature. Um, but when you're getting into your longer runs that are two plus hours, you want to make sure you are having something every 30 minutes that does equate to 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrates per hour. I do for my intense, uh, my athletes that are marathon runners or they train for greater than three hours, I want to up that to 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Okay. And then you're working with, you know, I presume some recreational athletes mm -hmm. as well, just kind of everyday folks who like to run and bike and whatever. And, you know, during the year, if your clients are anything like everyone I'm around, <laughs> they're going to often want to shed a few pounds is usually the way mm -hmm. they say, you know, I want to lose 10 pounds. I want to lose five pounds. And these are often people who are, to my mind, pretty lean. Um, that kind of person who wants to increase training and um, run a caloric deficit, because they'll have to if they're gonna, mm -hmm. and they, they want to get that body fat percentage down, right? Because they don't necessarily want to lose weight, they want to lose body fat. I mean, can they do that in a few months? Is this a realistic goal, especially if they're trying to increase their training? Or is this something that is a little bit of a kind of trying to you have competing goals, essentially, and you're, you're trying to have your cake and eat it for want of a better yeah. phrase. Um, is it possible? It is possible. Um, but there are going to be a lot more cons to trying to lose a couple pounds, especially if you're already a lean individual, it's going to be a little bit harder. Um, so I do advocate any body composition changes that you want to make, we make in a base phase. But if you're mm. 12 to 16 weeks out of your competition, and this is where your, your training starts to ramp up, I typically encourage to wait till after your race. If, mm -hmm. if they, they are meeting their base needs with carbohydrates, they have a really solid fueling plan. There is potential where we can tweak some things, maybe introduce carb cycling and those sort of things to maybe have one to two kilogram changes in body composition. But again, it, that's very far and few in between. Um, I definitely mm, okay. encourage focus on your fueling strategy during that training period, and then we'll do body recomposition in your base phase. So everybody listening, it's May, right? It's the middle <laughs> of the season. So yeah. let's, uh, let's put these fat loss goals on the shelf <laughs> and yes. focus on fueling until after the air race. Does that, is that a fair summary? Yes. And, and then that's always hard because off season or that base training phase typically happens like during the holiday period. And mm -hmm. so people are typically relaxed or something. So a lot of my athletes that January, February period, right before training will pick up is where I do a lot of my body recomposition. Okay. Okay. So yeah, sort of trying to, because I, I guess most people don't think, oh, yeah, I want to shed a few pounds this time next year. Or, you know what I mean? They, they, mm -hmm. they, they want to do it then. That's why they're bringing it up. But you're thinking, you know, time it, you know, within if you want to also uh, run regularly or, or train, then time mm -hmm. it within the year. And um, is there a window of time you need for a certain amount of fat loss? You know, is it like, okay, you need 12 weeks here or you need 16 weeks? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. How, there, how would someone know? There is no particular time period. I will say that the longer someone is in a caloric deficit, the more 
impairments that they have to like hormones, recovery, and those sort of things. So with athletes, I try to keep fat loss phases anywhere from two months at most to four months. Um, when you start getting past that four month mark, one, you experience a lot of diet fatigue, which is a very psychological component that you got to take into consideration. Um, but then by that time, there's always, there's a race coming up that we got to prepare for or something of that Mm. nature. So you could go longer, but there are negative implications to going longer than four months. And are we talking about, you know, professional, semi-professionals here? Are we talking about people who are you know, accountants and teachers and physios and, you know, these kinds of people. Do we need to be that careful with it as well? I think so. In general population, um, absolutely. I find that elite athletes, there is not a lot of wiggle room, so we have to, like, get the fat loss phase within a certain time period. But for recreational athletes, I do find taking those diet breaks or limiting your diet period is absolutely crucial. Um, just because diet fatigue is a very real thing. So you'll have, you don't want to stick to it. You may start to experience cravings. Um, binges are a possibility, but then you can also have hormone implications. So the longer that you're in a deficit, you increase your hunger hormones, reduce your appetite suppressing hormones, which defeats the purpose of trying to lose weight. Right. Um, Mm. In severe long-term caloric deficits, if they're intense, you can start to see impairments as far as testosterone or any of your sex hormones. Um, recovery can be impaired and anything longer than four weeks you can or four months, there can be increased prevalence of injuries and also those sort of things. Yeah, so that's where my concerns um, come up, like um, because I'm usually trying to rehabilitate injuries or I'm trying to help someone get back to full training after, you know, just kind of on the back end of an Mm -hmm. injury and for for the listener i would encourage you to check out the i think it was a couple of episodes back we had mark hudson on to talk about um low energy availability and its effects on um hormones and the complications related to that and again mark does a really good job of walking everybody through that in a lot of detail so we can it's a very big topic diet I was thinking though, as you were saying that, you know, running a deficit for a long time, right? So you're, you're lo- let's say you're losing body fat continually for, let's say, four months. Um, now, obviously, with someone who, for whatever reason, they've decided that they are 10 pounds over where they would like to be, right? And that's probably enough time to get them um, into their preferred range. W- what about someone who's carrying in a lot of excess um, body fat? Um, I met a gentleman a few days ago who in the last two years lost, um, I think a hundred pounds. Um, and that was a large part of it was running and he hadn't got himself injured. He'd been running regularly and running more. And, um, he just, uh, worked with his doctor and been very diligent. And, um, I was quite surprised he hadn't had any problems. You know, I was asking these questions about injuries and, uh, hormones and things trying to look for if there was anything signs of the kind of wheels coming off and he seemed to be doing just fine although he was at the physio clinic so he wasn't 100% (laughs) perfect but (laughs) but um I'm just wondering what uh, is the advice or the the guidance different if you have a lot of excess body fat that you you know could uh, burn through essentially 
I think so. And there's no literature to support it. Um, with someone that does have excess body fat, they're actually going to see more of a positive um, response to that weight loss in regards to their hormones, cholesterol, all those sort of levels. Um, there's not to say that they may have increased risk for injury or bone fat loss. I know some people do a great job at managing that. Um, but even in those people who do lose a bunch of weight, there are the negative implications that happen. They have an adaptive metabolism. So their energy intake required to maintain their weight is a lot lower. Um, they may have impairments in hormones like leptin and ghrelin, which are those hunger supporting and suppressing hormones um, and those sort of things that are not commonly test for. But I will say it's very person dependent. I have some people, like you said, who have lost a ton of weight. They used running and a combination of diet, did great, fantastic, and they're maintaining and they love it. Um, but I do also have some other people who they need diet breaks and they're on this journey of like, okay, I'm in a dieting period. We're going to train fantastic, lose some weight. Then we take a diet break some sort, and then we may return back to it. And we also may cycle that mm -hmm. based on their training as well. So it is really person dependent, but there is no research to kind of support or disagree with uh, fat loss for someone with a, a larger degree of fat. Okay. And so it sounds like one thing you do is if you're looking at fat loss is trying to time it appropriately so not in the build-up to a challenging race and, and potentially mm -hmm. in the off-season uh, that you do it slowly by the sounds of it so you're not trying to run large deficits in caloric intake versus expenditure. How do you help um, directly with your clients in terms of planning their training and if so what or what would you recommend when it comes to you know that base building phase Let's say it's the winter here in Canada, and uh, we've got a let's say a runner who runs I don't know thirty kilometers a week on average. Mm -hmm. Um, what do you do? Do you drop it down and and you know focus on the diet? Do you keep it the same? Do do you ramp it up a little bit to get the expenditure out, but make sure you fuel them right so that they don't uh, accidentally eat too much? Um, how would you approach that period of the year where you're trying to have some um fat loss? Yeah. So a lot of my clients are typically working with a scope, a coach that's specific, specific to their sport run coach or triathlon coach or, or whatever it may be. So I typically work in conjunction with them. Um, I, my, my goal is not to step on any toes. I want to have most positive collaboration. So depending on what their coach assigns to them in that base phase, I will kind of navigate around that and we'll take approach to kind of facilitate a caloric deficit during that time period. Um, and depending on the client, this may be calorie counting. This may be using a portion control method. This may use a training plates, um, maybe just reducing carbohydrates at specific meal times. Some clients do do intermittent fasting, but that's not as common. That is a very far and few between recommendation, depending on the person. Um, so I, it's hard to give specifics, but we do encourage a caloric deficit during that base period. And I adjust that caloric deficit based on how intense that training period is for them. So with more intensity, there would be more carbohydrate, I'm thinking? Yes, yes. Okay. And I think I, I came across you on the Endurance Innovation Podcast, and you, you were sort of trying to answer this question. And you'd mentioned something about... Um, I think you said increasing protein in order to mm -hmm. decrease potentially, uh, I think, fat. Um, yes. I wonder if you remember that comment and if you could <laughs> <laughs> talk me through what you were 
referring to there? Yeah, so I'm not quite positive the exact comment, but I, I think you're alluding to just, just protein intake in general and how it impacts fat loss. So the okay. studies have shown that having a higher protein diet is going to help minimize any sort of muscle loss. Because quite frankly, when you're losing weight, which is typically how people will monitor any sort of body composition changes, well, it's not the only piece, it's the most easy and accessible one. Um, we do want to try to maintain that muscle mass as possible. If we're not accounting for protein, or if someone has a low protein diet, you're looking at anywhere of losing 50% fat and then also 50% muscle. So if you lose two kilograms, one's going to be fat, one's going to be muscle. However, we can minimize that by having a higher protein intake. So someone who is an endurance trained athlete, or even recreational athlete that is endurance training and wanting to do fat loss, maintain that muscle mass, you want to aim for anywhere of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per day of protein. So that is going to be on the higher end. That's going to help with satiety, maintaining that muscle mass, ensuring that you're recovering in a caloric deficit as well. Okay, that was a lot at once. So the, <laughs> go back Sorry. to the first bit you said. Um, did you say that you lose, you know, for every gram or pound of fat you lose, you lose a similar amount of muscle when you're mm -hmm. losing weight yes i did not if know you're that not a, yeah if you're not a, if you have a low protein diet and it's just a caloric base i will say that yeah. has been done in extreme um caloric deficit so you're thinking 1200 calories or less so take that into consideration but. so it may be uh less pronounced if you're only running a slight deficit of maybe 100 or 200 calories a day negative mm -hmm. balance okay yeah. right okay and then you would increase the protein um, in order to compensate for that. So, you know, I want to lose 10 pounds in the next three months mm -hmm. and I don't want five of those to be muscle because I don't have a lot to spare because I'm a runner. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also it's not going to change my, the way I look, except I'll mm -hmm. look a bit worse. So um, one of the ways I would do that would be to increase my protein intake. Mm -hmm. You know, I would keep overall calories or just the amount I eat each day about the same but I would mm -hmm. you know focus on foods that gave me more protein and then you gave an amount and um, I was wondering if you could maybe translate that into something that is a bit easier to kind of wrap your head around so for let's say um, uh, a woman who weighs 58 kilograms <laughs> um, how much protein would you need a day and what might that look like like how, how much food is that? Yeah. So general rule of thumb, you can just double your, your weight in kilograms. So if she's 58 kilograms, uh, that's 116 grams of protein. Ah, that's yes. easy. Okay. Yeah, so <laughs> and then how much, how much protein and let's say I, I'm a vegan, so I'm useless at this, but like, <laughs> like, let's say I had, I've got chili ready for tonight and it's got beans and lentils in it. Um, how much is a bowl of chili like that going to have protein? <laughs> so for a cup of lentils or beans, depending on the type, you're looking at about anywhere from 8 to 15 grams of protein for a cup. And I, okay. And I'd need like 100? No, 140 for the day? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, sorry, I didn't tell you. I'm 70 kilograms. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I yes. would need 140 uh, grams of protein and there'd only be 15 in my bowl of chili 
Mm-hmm. That's a lot of pot. Okay, so is this just because I'm a, a vegan? Do I need to start eating meat? <laughs> no. <laughs> How much would be like, uh, like say a chicken breast, for example? So three ounces of chicken breast, which is about the size of your palm or a deck of cards, you're looking at about 20 grams of protein. Um, but I will say I do work with a lot of plant-based athletes and we can get their protein needs. I will say it does take a little bit of effort um, in some what I call nutritional awareness. So a lot of learning of what foods have how much protein and Mm. kind of just learning how to navigate that. So if you're eating five meals per day, so you're looking at 25 to 35 grams of protein per meal, maybe 15 to 25 grams of protein per snack. Um, I typically like to break it up in meals. It can tend to be a little bit more feasible that way. And so we would just find combination of plant-based proteins to help meet your needs. So let's say you did Mm. have a cup of bowl of that chili. Maybe we add some quinoa to it. Um, And then maybe for snacks, we have some type of coconut yogurt with some nuts and seeds, adding some hemp seeds to that and those sort of things to making sure that we are getting your needs. So it's not impossible as a vegetarian or any sort of plant-based athlete. Um, It is definitely possible. It's just taking a little bit of a learning curve to learn what foods give you that amount of protein and how to pair them together. And I would imagine it it doesn't sound like it would be super easy for someone who eat meat either to mm-hmm. um to eat that amount of protein and not increase the caloric intake, right? Because if they're eating you know, something like bacon, it's going to have a ton of fat in it as well, so the calorie count is going to shoot really high, but you you're looking to, you know, if you've got your three macros you you want to increase the port protein proportion and mm-hmm. reduce the fat proportion during this period of fat loss so you don't necessarily want more food or calories you want more protein and push out some of the other stuff so um it sounds like it would be quite difficult to do that too you i don't imagine that most people who are running to lose weight are really focusing on getting that much protein in each day would that be a fair reflection of people you work with that they, that they find that difficult or that that is a, a bit of an eye-opening um, sort of moment? It is. Um, even for athletes that aren't looking to lose weight, we're just trying to maintain their muscle mass and recover. It, it is definitely an eye-opener because we, we, we think we have a portion of, of protein on our plate. We're good to go. But if you're an athlete, I, I do encourage trying to focus and, and learn a little bit about what foods have what types of like how much proteins in there so that you can learn to make sure that you're eating enough protein. Um, Mm. It's anytime someone is going through a fat loss phase, I always preface that it is going to be a learning curve and it's also going to take effort. And so with that Mm. being said, if you're training for something, but you also have a lot of other stress in your life. So I don't know, maybe your kids in soccer practice. So you got to be there five days a week or, or, you're an attorney or your accountant, and it's a very busy period or something like that, it may not be advantageous for you to go into a fat loss phase because in a fat mm-hmm. loss phase, your your cognitive or your mental function is going to go down. You're going to have increased rates of irritability. It's just going to happen. Um, and there has to be some sort of focus on your diet because it is a learning curve. So mm-hmm. I do yeah, you have, inc- to have that energy. Yes, exactly. I, no, you're good. I, I do encourage that other like life aspects taken into consideration to make sure if it is the right time for an athlete to be to be in a fat loss stage yeah i mean again that 
I don't know that that's something people often think about, right? That they think it's not the time. You know, I think probably more so what happens is people, for whatever reason, they don't feel good about the way they look and they want to lose some body fat and they want to do it then. They don't think I'm going to schedule this in for maybe, uh, you know, August or September when the kids go back to work before uh, to work to school <laughs> before uh, Christmas or just after Christmas so it's not too str- oh you know what I mean I don't mm-hmm. but it sounds like that would be actually quite a helpful thing to do to plan it around your life and your um, training and your races because you know as we've talked about I mean you just tell me that protein that I'm thinking now I'm going to go and look up how much protein I'm supposed <laughs> to be eating <laughs> I bet it's not enough <laughs> so um yeah, that that having space in your brain and in your life for that um, learning curve is, again, just trying to make it so that you're mm-hmm. stacking the deck in your favor if this is what you want to do. Yeah, absolutely. What do and, you think about? Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say it's a conversation I have with anyone going into a fat loss stage. I don't set this unrealistic expectation of you know what you see on social media or something like that. I. I'm really honest with them. And I'm like, is this a time for you? We kind of go through pros and cons and make that decision to see if it is the best time for them or not. Yeah, excellent. And I would argue for any of my listeners who've worked with me in the past, when you've just got over an injury and you're about to ramp up your training for your air race, this is not the time. So (laughs) I'm going to refer people back to this episode. (laughs) So I I did mean to ask though with... um, with protein, if you want to get your protein up in that period, um, are protein shakes helpful for that? Or do they um, do they mess things up because they're not food and they maybe don't fill you up the way real food would? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. So I'm a proponent for supplements as long as they supplement a diet. So I don't think we should become reliant on a protein shake every single day or twice a day because that's, you know, the convenient food. I do believe there needs to be uh, that opportunity to learn of how to get that food in without any sort of protein supplement. With that being Mm -hmm. said, does that mean you have to go without protein supplements at all? No, I use protein supplements. If I can't get to a meal right away, or if I'm kind of running out the door, I may use a protein supplement or a protein shake. So I think they have their, their place but it's not something that you should become 100% reliant on. Excellent. Yeah. And so it would be the same, you know, whether you're running, lifting weights, pre-workout, post-workout, yep. during workout, <laughs> all that kind of stuff is like try and get in the habit of using real food and learn mm-hmm. what, um, let's say in this instance, protein amounts you're getting from different foods and how you're going to, um, how you're going to make habits that allow you to do that often Mm -hmm. but allowing yourself when you need to to use protein shakes to make your life a bit easier yes absolutely okay okay that's helpful too because I was like (laughs) when you said that about the protein I was like I'm gonna have to start protein shake every day (laughs) so I'm not gonna do that (laughs) I'm gonna try and do it with real food (laughs) if you're not in a fat loss state your protein needs go down a little bit um so you're thinking about that's true yeah it wasn't yeah. yeah So it's that fat loss stage, it is going to be quite a bit higher. But if you're not in that fat loss stage, and then that's a great point of like using the protein supplement. So if you're in the fat loss stage, you may use that protein supplement to kind of help boost and get you to where you need as far as your protein goes. But if you're not in that stage anymore, and your protein needs kind of reduce, 
don't use a protein supplement if you don't have to. Maybe use it once a week because you're running out the door or need it post-workout. Do your clients find when they increase their protein intake that they that they also need to be mindful of the consumption of other foods or like carbohydrate and fat? Do they need to be mindful and reduce the, let's say, the fat probably? Or does it naturally just kind of push space off the plate? I would say it's a combination combination of both and it kind of depends. I will say a lot of even my recreational athletes have a tendency to undereat or go through these cycles mm. where they'll undereat during the week and maybe overeat on the weekend. So we just learn to balance their energy intake or those sort. But protein in itself has increased levels of satiety. And so the more protein you eat, the more satisfied you are going to be after your meal. So I naturally see a reduction in just overall calories throughout the day because someone has upped their protein source. Um, I will say there are some proteins I do encourage more often than others. So you mentioned Mm. bacon earlier. I would argue bacon is more of a fat source than a protein source. So, or some people call it um, a low quality protein source just because it doesn't have that much protein and a lot of fat in it. Um, So there is, again, another learning curve there of learning what foods provide you quality protein, but also may not contribute to um, increased fat or carbohydrate intake. Okay. And what would be some examples of some good protein sources uh, for, for the meat eaters and my one or two vegan listeners who will be out there somewhere? Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's more. I I have like, I have a lot of (laughs) plant-based athletes and I I love it. I'm here for it. Um, as far as that's, that's encouraging. Yeah. (laughs) I think I feel less lonely. (laughs) I think I saw a statistic like 20% of those Americans were actually um, plant-based, which I think is fantastic. Um, really? Okay. Um, so for my uh, meat eaters. So any sort of lean protein. And when I say lean protein, these are going to be protein sources that have lower fat content. So examples of this is going to be seafood, fish, chicken breast, turkey breast, egg whites, those sort of things. Um, your higher fat protein sources are going to be things like beef and pork and those sort of meats, just because they do have quite a bit of fat um, in addition to protein. So you want to be cautious there. Some other protein sources can include dairy products. Um, If someone's in a fat loss phase, I may advocate for a low-fat dairy product, so low-fat yogurt, low-fat milk, or something of that nature. Um, For my plant-based individuals, you have things like nuts and seeds, soy products are fantastic, tempeh, seatin, hemp seeds is a really great one. Then you have whole grains, things like quinoa and those sorts. They are going to have carbohydrates in them, um, but they are going to be on the lower fat side. And they actually can can contain pretty good amount of protein. I know a lot of whole grain breads have eight grams of protein per slice. So two Mm. slices of toast in the morning, you have 16 grams of protein. Slap on some peanut butter, and then you have another eight grams of protein. So you have 24 grams of protein with peanut butter toast. So. Okay, I can definitely do that because I eat loads of peanut butter. Yeah, so I'll just try. I'll just make sure it's the the high protein uh, kind. Yeah. And um, you know, I, I guess we didn't specifically mention, but I got the impression from the interview I listened to on the Endurance Innovation podcast was that you want to keep carbohydrate as is because you, it's going to mess up your training if you if you try and reduce that too. 
it's it's the fat intake that you can spare you mm-hmm. need the carbohydrate and you increase the protein so that you don't lose all your muscles while you're losing weight yes yeah typically i okay. uh, carbohydrates will stay roughly the same and i try to focus those carbohydrates around that workout period if we do need to cut out carbohydrates cuz we still need fats i do try to keep fats within at 20% of our energy intake or our caloric intake. Um, so if fats are getting too low and I don't want to cut those out anymore, I can cut carbohydrates, but we would just make sure that we time it appropriately. So if you're training in the afternoon, your breakfast may be lower carbohydrate, but your lunch and dinner may be your carbohydrate containing meals because we're keeping those carbs around that workout period. Uh, okay. Okay. That's helpful too. Yeah, I, I do, my, my training's very weird. It's all commuting. So it's either running or biking to work in the morning and then yeah. doing it on the way home. And yeah, so that I have this weird workout schedule that's always at those two times. Interesting. My, it's, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's, it's unusual and tricky with the fueling side of things. Like I definitely oh. sometimes bonk on the way home and I try and avoid it. I try and make sure I've eaten enough and that I have like a sports drink or something with me to to if I need it and, and try and eat something just before I leave. But if it's a longer, harder workout and it's hot, it often happens that I just feel myself flagging. So wow. it's it's a tricky one because um, you know, as you know, uh, especially for recreational athletes, we can't like um line up everything in our life to fit around mm-hmm. our training, right? I've got a baby who woke me up at four o'clock this morning. I had to go to work. <laughs> I had to get a run in on the way there and on the way home and now I'm talking to you. And I'm starving, to be honest. <laughs> this is pretty, pretty typical. Yeah, and I, I run into that a lot. You know, I, I work with lawyers and accountants or moms and dads and those sort mm. of things. It's funny you say that my physio actually does her training when she commutes too. So maybe oh, really? it's a physio thing. Um, <laughs> maybe. But may, maybe just trying finding and, and finding things to navigate that. So maybe we give you a higher carbohydrate lunch and I know it's going to be four or five, six hours maybe before you get home or maybe even more. So maybe try to have, it could be applesauce that I, you just chug down before you go on your bike and then maybe mm. having a sports drink ready when you get home because you have calls. I know I've done that before. Mm-hmm. I'll go out for a run and then I have client calls and I just have mm-hmm. some sort of drink or maybe a pre-made smoothie um, just ready to go. Yeah. And it takes a little bit of planning. And will it be 100% perfect? Absolutely not. And so that's kind of where I work with clients and try to do the best that we can. Well, I guess um, something that is new to me that I'm going to take away from this is that think about afterwards, right? So I knew this was going to happen today. And I could have, when I got home tonight, instead of just getting a glass of water, I could have got, um, you know, I have some Gatorade powder, I could have made that, right? And then I wouldn't be, uh, I would be recovering more quickly from the run I did on the way home. And Mm -hmm. I would be uh, more able to recover well for my run or bike or whatever it's going to be tomorrow and also i'm not going to get like really hungry or quite as hungry um in the next hour or two yeah yep, exactly. something i did want to ask because i know we're running short of time i have many many <laughs> diet related questions but uh, <laughs> the um i you're a dietitian so you're working with people on this all the time i'd imagine for most people i encounter um this isn't a question of race weight type considerations. These aren't people who are, um, you know, running to 
to win prize money or anything like that. They're just doing it for health. And sometimes they want to reduce body fat as part of it. And the only tool they have to measure their progress is the scale, which measures their weight. And you just said that we lose, you know, one pound of body fat will lose a pound of muscle in most circumstances, it sounds like, as I'd imagine most people aren't doing what you described with the higher protein intake. Is the scale a useful tool? Is it is it something that you use to help your athletes? Or is it just confusing people? I think it's a combination of both. So I think it does confuse people. But um, I've been able to navigate it and work with my client. So not everyone has access to a body fat um, mm. device such as a bod pod or a DEXA scan. So we don't have much options. And I I really don't like the at-home scales that tell you your body fat, the error in no, those. No, is... I've, I've heard of that. I, I presume that's just nonsense. Is that true? <laughs> it doesn't seem like something a scale could yeah. do. I find that it does more harm psychologically than anything because <laughs> the fluctuations in it are insane. So I don't recommend that's, those. Yeah, so, <laughs> someone was telling me the other day about her changes. And I was like, this sounds nuts. This sounds absolutely nuts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so when it comes to using the scale, because I, I do use the scale, Um, I do quite a bit of education of what the scale means and what contributes to weight fluctuations, because the last thing I need is I need it. I don't want an athlete, whether they're recreational or not having their day ruined simply by what the number on the scale said. Mm, Right. mm. Um, so we go through education of what causes weight fluctuations and what we're looking for because weight loss is also not a linear component. And then we Mm. also use other measures. So this could be pant sizes, it could be inches or the most common ones that I'll use in addition to weight loss. Um, because you can lose inches be, you know, a kilogram less, but your clothes fit better as well. That's a sign of fat loss and maintaining that muscle mass. Um, How just in a practical sense? Yeah, where do you put the tape measure? And does it depend on like, let's say the, the sex of the athlete? Um, and, and their goals? Like, where do you measure? Yeah, so we can do as few or as many as we like. So I have some clients that want to do their arms, their thighs, their waist, their hips, and, and maybe their chest and those sort of things. I find that most people are most interested in their waist and their hips. So if you're measuring your waist, easiest way to measure that is your belly button. So just measure okay. across on your belly button. Some people will disagree with that, but it's the easiest for most people. And it, your belly button's not going to move a whole lot up or down on your body, right? <laughs> um and then as far as your your hips go, it's just going to be where your glutes are the largest. And so you'll just put the tape measure around there. Okay. And I mean, this is a different question. I don't want to open a can <laughs> of worms, but obviously um, abdominal visceral fat is um, more dangerous as I understand it. So mm-hmm. should that, is there a... Will that come later if you're, you know, trying to lose body fat? Would you lose it elsewhere and then lose that later? Would that go first? Um, is that, can you have any influence over it? Um, um, if you're trying to improve your health, I'm guessing, and your doctor says lose some belly fat, you know, I can imagine. Yeah. Is there anything you can do about it? Because I'm presuming sit-ups don't help with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, we can't spot reduce. Even if you're doing a ton of sit-ups does not mean you're going to lose weight in your stomach area. So that's the unfortunate thing. We can't control where fat loss is going to occur. I will say though, that people who do focus on 
you know, having a healthful diet, diet quality, which means make more whole foods and those sort of things, higher protein intake, and also those that exercise will tend to lose that stomach or visceral fat um, at a pretty good rate anyways. So, Okay. Okay. So it's, uh, it, you should see that. So, I mean, obviously I'm trying to encourage most people who ask me anything related to this to work with you or to work with another dietitian. Um, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, as you know, we're just scratching the surface here. It's a very complicated topic yeah. because, you know, we haven't even touched on the mental health side of this, right. And the, mm-hmm. the relationship between, uh, how we look and how we feel about ourselves and how complicated that can be, which, yeah. you know, I very deliberately avoided that because I wanted to stick <laughs> to the more simple side of, um, the equation, yeah. but, um, would it be fair, you know, as a physio and someone says, you know, I'm running to lose weight, I can point them to this podcast and give them some, um, hand over some of this advice. And is it like, okay, well, maybe don't pay attention to the scale so much, pick a tape measure point, make that your metric. Is that a better guide to fat loss? Should they be using calipers or, you know, this kind of stuff? Or is that good enough? And and should I steer people away from the scale? Because that's always my temptation, because I don't want them to. Um, my cons- I'm often trying to push people into strength training, right? Because mm-hmm. that helps with injury recovery and uh, reduction and performance. And um, I want them to train a lot because it's good for them. That's why they're there, right? Um, so then trying to lose weight really feels unhelpful to me mm-hmm. um, from my perspective particular perspective with my priorities but they're like I want to lose some body fat that's one of my priorities right so would they be better off going tape measure do they need calipers should they use skills uh or or should they do some other method yeah really good question and and so you bring up a good point because not not everyone knows about dietitians or has access to them and so if something someone is coming to see you I think as a professional, I I trust you to be able to determine if a scale may or may not be helpful to someone. Um, If you don't feel comfortable, go navigating that. Um, I can send you some recommendations and resources. But I think having some sort of article on hand explaining what weight is and weight fluctuations that you can send to your clients so that they can kind of really get a good grasp of how effective weight loss can be by using the scale. Encourage other components of health. So the tape measure is a really good example. I would say calipers are a little bit difficult. They're really hard to use at home by yourself. So I I may not encourage calipers, but also start addressing them, asking them, how's your energy intake? Like, how are you feeling today? How are you sleeping? So also encouraging those other aspects of health um, because health is not, not independent of weight. It's not just weight alone. It's all those other things that we need to take in consideration. So if we build that environment of Uh, health being all these other components, they're going to start to feel good. They're going to start to see that progress and be encouraged to look at other things as well. Yeah. And I guess that's something I always um, touch on when people ask about this is also, um, if you are trying to run a caloric deficit, keep an eye on your um, like general fatigue levels, Mm -hmm. keep an eye on your mood and how you feel keep an eye on your menstrual cycle if you're female and um what was the other thing keep an eye out for niggles are they going Mm -hmm. away quickly are they sticking around all the time are they are you getting injured frequently because these are signs that um the system is not in a a healthy state 
and something needs to change. Exactly. So. Okay. Um, that, that was super helpful. Um, I have more questions, but I, I think we should stop there before we go <laughs> okay. too long. So I, yeah. I just wanted to say thank you. And if um, people who are listening to this want to work with you or uh, maybe just want to follow you online and see what you're all about, how, how would they find you? Yeah, so two main places. So I do have a website. It's just stephaniesmallcoaching.com. I post blogs on there, information. I also have a newsletter you can sign up for where I send a bunch of cool information and resources as well. Um, So you can find me there. My other place that I'm pretty big on is Instagram. So it's just stephaniesmall.rd for my Instagram handle. I post a lot of education content there, do Q&A. So if you're not looking to work one-on-one, I'm happy to to answer any sort of small questions that you may have via DM or my Q&A boxes that I have there as well. Wonderful. Thank you. I will put links to all of those in the show notes and uh, a few of the articles I've read off your blog uh, that I found (laughs) quite interesting. So thank you for for doing that as well. And thanks for joining us today. That uh, That was really helpful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was fun. As I mentioned at the start, I had a couple of follow-up emails with Steph and I wanted to record those for you guys. So first off, I had a question from a client about weight loss and running and he asked me to put it to Steph. Is it common to gain weight after endurance training slash events? I weighed myself Friday morning before my training camp and again this morning. There was a gain of three pounds, which I find interesting as I was most definitely in a caloric deficit during the training weekend interested to know what the contributing factors could be. And just for context, this client did an 80 kilometer trail running, um, uh, 80 kilometers of trail running, sorry, during the training camp. And this was Steph's answer. Weight gain during intense training or events is actually more common than weight loss. People don't really like to hear this. But the good news is that it's not fat weight and it shouldn't stay for very long. The most common reason is gonna be water retention for two reasons. The first is that when muscle damage occurs, fluid floods the area and to start the recovery process. Water retention can occur in the area if you ever have an intense workout or run. Training in the heat can exacerbate muscle damage and water retention. The more intense the training, the more fluid retention. The second is going to be the amount of water and electrolytes consumed. High amounts of electrolytes result in water retention which is a good thing and why we consume electrolytes, especially when training at intense levels or in the heat. Intense training promotes water retention via the kidney and hormones that regulate fluids such as aldosterone and vasopressin. Another reason for the increase in weight gain would be glycogen stores. He said he was in a caloric deficit, so this may not be the case. But if a client carb loads and then adheres to a proper fueling plan, i.e. 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour, then their glycogen is going to hit its max which is what we want. However, for every one gram of glycogen, three grams of water are attached. So you're not only storing carbs, but also water, which can contribute to about one to five pounds of weight gain, depending on the person and their training level. Depending on recovery, he should lose the three pounds by the end of the week. Also, Stephanie emailed me to say that she wanted to clarify something in regards to the protein requirements during a period of fat loss. And here's what she said. If someone does have high amounts of excess body fat, we do what we call an adjusted mean body weight to estimate protein needs that still should be efficient for the client to meet. In reality, eating 200 plus grams of protein per day is quite unrealistic to most people. So we'll make adjustments accordingly. 
For applicability to you, if you had a patient with excess body fats, i.e. a BMI over 35 or more than 40% body fat, you could do 160 to 175% of their weight in kilograms to get their estimated grams. For example, a 110 kilogram person could do about 165 to 190 grams of protein. Anyway, if you would like to clarify any questions for yourself, just shoot me an email at mvoidphysio.com and I will be sure to forward that on to Stefan. Thanks for listening, guys.